This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is Katie Arnold, author of the memoir Running Home. Arnold is a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and an ultra runner. She is the women's champion of the Leadville 100-mile run. Her memoir, Running Home, chronicles the death of her father, who was a National Geographic photographer, and Arnold's journey to find solace and eventually healing after his death. Arnold's parents divorced when she was very young, and she grew up with a sort of guilt that somehow she caused the split. She explores this notion and unravels parts of her father's life she never knew over the course of her memoir which is also interspersed with her life as a writer for Outside Magazine and her path to becoming an ultra runner. We began the discussion with Katie Arnold sharing how she first got into writing. I've just always been, I guess, a storyteller, um, trying to make sense of my world as a young child, which I think most kids, you know, that's an impulse we all have. Um, but for me, it was it was extra strong because I had this this sort of mystery in my life, which is you know, what was the source of my parents split? Like, why did our family just sort of dissolve? No one told me anything. Um, It was the 70s. And so, um, you know, I think that was the norm back then. So I just began, you know, trying to solve that. And my my natural way, I think, was to make up stories around it. And, um, and that was, I think, the big impetus for for writing, um, even though I didn't write those stories down, I was telling them, I was baking them up in my head um, as I explored my neighborhood and rode my bike around. Um, and I was also a really big reader. I've always loved books. Um, so I think the two went hand in hand um, and, and that I just knew deep down somehow that I always wanted to be a writer. So tell me a little bit about the running home and, and why all these things sort of congealed 
into this memoir. It just kind of came out of me as I was going through the grief of losing my father. So my father passed away or he got sick in um, the fall of 2010. And this was um, only a couple of months after my second daughter was born. So I had a new baby who was growing as fast as my father was dying. And I also had a toddler at home. So life was just chaotic. It was um, lots of emotions as I was, you know, mothering for the second time and trying to attend to my father. And um, I traveled back and forth from Santa Fe, where I live with my husband and, and two girls, to my dad's farm in Virginia and um, trying to help. But it was clear that my father was um, was dying and there was nothing much to be done to help you know, him get better. Um, and what I found was the most pressing thing on my trips back was to kind of record what he was going through or what we were going through or what this was like. I'd never experienced, I'd never lost someone that close to me before. And um, I was... I just the writer in me wanted to get it all down, all the details. And at the time, I had no idea. I, it was never premeditated that I, you know, would, you know, my father was dying and I would turn this into a book and, and so on. It was just in the moment. That's what felt right to do was to get to be writing in my notebook, to write my way to it. And I had all notebooks for, you know, several years after died and I you know I kept writing and that's when I started running longer and longer distances because in the wake of his death I was um, really plagued by this um, intense anxiety that I was dying too and that's kind of how my grief manifested and um, running was really the best thing um, that worked to help me get through that anxiety. And so as I was running, I would be um, sort of remembering my childhood and, and piecing together parts, finding connections that I hadn't before. And also when I would make trips back to Virginia after he died, he had left this incredible archive of writing and photographs. Um, he was a National Geographic photographer, and um, but also many, many letters. And so I was uncovering who he was as a person as I was sort of uncovering who I was as a runner and a mother. And it, it just began to assemble in my head in a way that felt very natural. Um, and I, I think really I did the bulk of the writing of this book, not really the actual writing, but sort of the formation of it while I was out in the wilderness, moving through nature, trying to heal my, my grief. Can you talk a little bit about that grief? You know, you write about it in the book. You went to many healers. You realized that maybe you had some postpartum anxiety. So you had a lot of things coalescing at once. But everyone deals with grief differently. Mm -hmm. Had you dealt with major grief before? And I mean, I'm getting, of course, and it's in your book, and you just said that you, you found some solace through running. But I'm just wondering if you can talk about your experience of grief and if you experience it again, would you face it differently? Yeah, um, I hadn't lost, I'd lost um, grandparents who were extremely close to me. Um, when your parents divorce, you sort of, the, the grandparents, at least in my case, stepped in to really play a big role, a sort of a stability role in my life. So I had lost my grandparents, and but nothing um, like losing a parent. And for me, what surprised me about the grief was that it was so physical. 
Um, I have always imagined or experienced in my limited way grief as an emotion, right, as a sadness, a loss. Um, but when my father was dying, uh, grief became this this weight on my body, a physical weight, like I was wearing an extra heavy coat or I had just jumped in the water with a, you know, a wool coat on and it was, it was really heavy and weighted me down. And it was also like I experienced it as this sort of layer of grit on my skin. It was very strange. And so that when I would be in Virginia at my dad's farm, um, I would just, every trip it accumulated more and more on me. And um, I just remember I came back to Santa Fe at one point and I went up to the fancy Japanese health spa on the mountain and even like went and got, you know, signed up for one of those skin treatments where they exfoliate you thinking, you know, that, okay, she's going to scrub me with salt. And when I finish, I'm going to feel better, <laughs> you know, and I, and now I think back and sort of how magical that was to think that I could just scrub it off. <laughs> um, of course I got up and I felt worse, you know, it was still there. And so, so the grief was so physical. And I think that's why the running helped so much. It was a physical release of that, the grief and the sorrow. And also when I run, I, um, as many people do, probably when they run or when they do whatever they do that, that takes them out of their thinking mind and into their um, more perceptive or feeling self, um, I, I could leave the thoughts behind, right? So I would start out on a run worried about everything, my health, my daughter's, you know, my to-do list. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, the rhythm of my body would kind of take over and my thoughts would recede. And, and so I, I got real relief during those runs. Of course, when I came back, you know, it, the grief came back too. So it, it didn't, you know, rid me of my anxiety or my grief, but it, it did help me manage it. Um, and as to your second point of the, the part of the question, you know, how would I grieve differently? Oh, I'm sure I would grieve very differently another time. You know, this, this was, its own experience. And, and this was how my grief came out was through anxiety. Um, and the wilderness was really healing for me this time. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure I'm always a person who prefers to be in motion outside. And so I'm sure that would be um, important to me, you know, the next time, but it's impossible to say, right? Like, I can't hold on to the way that that this worked this last time. Um, you know, I, I don't even know what it would look like the next time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. During this book, you you talk about your parents wanting you to pursue something bigger. Your your mother, you know, told you to be indomitable. Your father said it's not kind of enough to just pursue a goal. It has to kind of mesh with maybe mm-hmm. some bigger values. So for you, you know, running was a big part of it. You became an ultra runner. Can you talk about your journey to becoming an ultra runner? I know for Outside Magazine, you started interviewing some ultra runners. Mm-hmm. And, and how did 
sort of running a little bit and in tune with your grief also speak to something bigger in your life? Because I think it does, but I could be wrong. It does. Yeah, it really does. Um, and I hadn't put that together, you know, until you just said that, that it kind of came from my mother and my father, which is to, to, um, to, that we're stronger than we think we are and, and we can always do more. Um, I think for me, I was just twofold. It was um, coming through my father's grief, the grief of losing my father and pushing myself into the wilderness, into the mountains near my home in Santa Fe as a way to sort of settle my mind as kind of a meditation while I ran that that did put me at ease. Um, and so as I ran, I developed, you know, a greater capacity for running and for being alone in the wilderness. And, and ultra running is really um, an exercise in learning to tolerate uncertainty, um, which is, you know, like life. It's a great lesson for life because we think we know what's around the next corner. Or we think we can plan for it or we have the five year plan or we're sort of on a trajectory and then you know, a loss like a parent or a loved one will shake that, you know, and will sort of wake you up to the fact that we don't really have control and we don't know what's around the next bend. And so I was experiencing that firsthand, you know, having a toddler and a newborn at home and going through my grief. And, um, and so running just helped me learn to be okay with that, that not knowing. Um, and that's a tricky space to be in, in this world, because we're always taught now that we need to know and that we need to have things under control. And so that was one that I was just, you know, I was pushing farther in within myself and building this endurance, both physical and emotional endurance, I think. And then, you know, you alluded to my outside background. So I've been a journalist with outside for almost 25 years. And I have met with many elite um, endurance athletes and adventure athletes. And those really sort of went deep into me, my experiences as a reporter, you know, on assignment, doing profiles about these people and kind of their passion for what they were doing. Um, it always was bigger than a physical pursuit. And that's how running has always been for me. I mean, running is really one way that I write. It's part of my creative process. And for these other athletes, they're um, sport as it, as it were, was an expression of something deeper in them. And I, and I felt that when I would spend a week with them, you know, in Yosemite climbing, or, um, I met the ultra runner, Dean Carnassus and, you know, accidentally ran my first marathon with him while reporting, you know, doing a profile on him. And, and, and they all had this deeper drive, um, that I identified with and didn't know where it would take me. Um, but I kind of filed it away in my unconscious and, 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 and then in the years, you know, following my father's death, as I was pushing farther, um, as a runner, those experiences came back to me and, and began to matter in a different way. And I think compelled me to try to see what I was capable of. And, and, and that really led me to my first ultra marathons and, um, having success there and, and, and those successes led me on. Well, what was it like dissecting your father after he was gone? Because in some ways, you you know, you grew up with this guilt about the divorce. You were close with him. And then when he died, you unearthed a lot, a lot of letters, letters to you, letters to other people, notebooks that he kept. And I'm wondering, 
if, you know, what you learned, if you want to talk about any of that about him, how does that re-piece together how you envisioned him? Yeah, it was really um, astounding because, um, you know, we knew that he had this massive archive of photographs um, from his work at National Geographic. And also he was constantly taking pictures of, you know, family life and his own life and um, but he was really this documentarian, almost a little ahead of his time. You know, now I think about it with everyone taking videos and audios and selfies. And, you know, I kind of chuckle because that was what my dad was doing years ago. And he would travel with, you know, one of those black Panasonic tape recorders that, you know, is like half the size of a suitcase. And when he spent time with my sister and me, he would sort of plunk it out on the table and, you know, and just say, pretend it's not here, just act normal. And he'd press play and we were supposed to just be having our normal conversation. And he wanted to get it down what we sounded like and what our, you know, the very ordinary details of our time together were like. And eventually my sister and I would forget that it was there. And, um, and so I had, I found tape recordings of our, you know, trips we'd taken and adventures we went on because he was always taking us on um, these great um, adventures on our bicycles or on rivers. And, and so going through this material, um, it was incredible because um, it was all there and he, you know, much of it he'd labeled and organized. He was very methodical in his organization and it was clear to me um, as I was going through the material in his basement office that he was working on his own project more than his photographs. He'd been working on his photographs and digitizing them, archiving them for 20 years, as long as he'd been retired. It was this crazy endurance feat that he, his own, you know, ultra marathon of, of um, archiving his life's work. And um, so we knew that was there, but what I didn't know was everything else. Um, and so when I went down to his basement in the days and weeks and months and years following his death, I would find um, a lot of the material he'd left. And again, it was quite organized. Um, everything was labeled, nothing was really hidden um, or secret, even though many of the things contained in those boxes and files had been kept secret. And so it was this oh, really interesting juxtaposition of very deeply private things and thoughts and very painful, um, almost tormented um, thoughts and you know experiences my dad had had, and then all sort of laid out for us to find. So going through it, you know, again, I couldn't go through it all in a systematic way. That was not how my mind worked or my heart at the time. I was, I, you know, I, it was too emotional to sort of go through everything all at once. And so I came to it in bits and pieces, sort of organically in my haphazard slash disorganized way, you know, unlike my father who was so organized. And um, the result was that I was I kind of found parts of him or parts of the story at exactly the right moment. Um, and the pieces then began to fit together in this sort of out of order, but very cohesive way. It, it's hard to explain, but, um, and, and that became kind of the structure in the book. I found that I was, I would find these pieces of him and, um, or my, you know, my stepmother would send me something um, that 
revealed something extraordinary about my father that I hadn't known, or I would go into, you know, my shed in Santa Fe and find a box of letters that I'd written to my father and received from my father when I was in college and spent a semester in Australia and was desperately lonely. This was right before email and people were still writing long letters. And, um, and so everything felt very serendipitous about what I was finding and when I was finding it. And so it began to assemble into this picture of him that I hadn't known. Um, and, and it happened in, again, in this sort of out of order way that, that made sense to me and that I could handle and process. Um, and that someone else with a more methodical mind would have definitely approached it differently. Um, but I think it was, it was the only way I could do it. And, and it really, it gave me this picture of my father that I hadn't known, you know, when we're children and even adults, young adults or adults with parents, we think of our parents as just our parents, right? We, we don't think of their whole lives, that they're individuals. And, and I was discovering that that was, you know, that my father was so much more than a father and thank goodness <laughs> there was so much there, you know, he, we all are so much more than just parents. And now that I'm a parent too, I, I appreciate that even more. Um, but I, in some ways I know my father better now, you know, that he's been gone than I did when he was alive. So a lot of people don't really know what it feels like to, to run an ultra marathon. And I'm wondering if you can talk <laughs> about the, what you go through, what it's physically and emotionally like, I mean, it sounds like on some level, it's also a place to meditate because you said you figured out a lot of your book and your grief. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, you have a lot of time on the trail when you're running 50 miles. Yes, you do have a lot of time. So you have a lot of time to be with your own self. And um, so it's, you know, it's all those things. It's very physical. So you'll start out and um, you might feel great and strong and excited and then you'll go through the, the physical lows where you'll get tired or you're climbing a long hill or you're running up a mountain and um, your body slows down. You, there's, you're always moderating and sort of shifting your tempo to match the terrain, which is what's so exciting to me about um, being a trail runner or a mountain runner is that it's not that steady, singular, you know, single pace. It's you are responding to your environment and you're responding to the terrain and the weather. There's so many variables, the altitude, um, are you climbing or descending? And I love that because it's, it's never the same run twice, you know, it's every time it's different. And I think I'm not really a road runner, though I have been on the road, you know, I do run on roads to get to the trails. And I have run some road races, that's much more uniform, your pace and your gait. And for me, it feels so much more creative. And um, I don't know, expressive somehow, to be moving through mountains and trails and, um, and, and being more nimble to change, okay, I'm going to walk this section because you do do a lot of walking. I mean, that's, I think a little known fact of ultra running is that it does entail a lot of ultra walking or hiking. Um, you're conserving energy, like in a long race, if you have a steep, steep climb, you'll just hike it. And that, and that's the smart way to do it. Um, so at the same time that your body is sort of shifting to respond to the environment, you know, you're, I find my mind is very, 
um, awake and alert, all my senses firing to um, my environment around me and the trees and the weather and is the weather changing and um, are there creek crossings to get across and um, it's just, um, it's a very receptive state. There's definitely a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of um, doubt can creep in and concern or worry like Sometimes when I'm racing, I'll have a little nagging pain in my leg or my calf or I'll worry about something and that worry can easily become something bigger, you know, especially if you're facing 50 miles, you know, you've got a little pain in your calf. It's really easy to go down that road of, oh my God, you know, my calf's going to explode. My, you know, my muscle is, is, um, you know, going to blow up and, and, but what I find is that if I just stay with it and I note that fear, because I do have a lot of fears when I run and I write about that and running home, you know, I'll note it and then I'll just try to let it pass and say, okay, if this is still bugging me in two or three miles, say like 20 or 30 minutes, okay, we can revisit it. So it's also a practice in letting go because there's, you're, you'll definitely have a lot of worries or concerns when you're out running alone for long distances. But if you can sort of meet them and then release them, um, it's great practice for other parts of your life, you know, like being a parent where those worries come up all the time. Can you read something that influenced you as a writer by another author? I'm going to read part of a story by Alice Monroe, who is my favorite writer. I love her work because her stories are both sort of ordinary, so ordinary, and her language is quite plain sometimes, but also just like magnificent in a way because they they make these twists and turns that you don't see coming, which is so much like life, which is so much like grief when I went through it. Um, and um, she, you know, also in her narratives, there's these great leaps, you know, and she'll just skip over time. She really plays with time and in, in um, sort of very cunning way. And, um, I love both of those things. You know, you kind of want, you can't figure out how she does it, but it also seems effortless at the same time. So the, this story I'm going to read is called Miles City, Montana. I wished I could get my feelings about Andrew to come together into a serviceable and dependable feeling. I had even tried writing two lists, one of things I liked about him, one of things I disliked. In the cauldron of intimate life, things I loved and things I hated. As if I hoped by this to prove something, to come to a conclusion one way or the other. But I gave it up when I saw that all it proved was what I already knew, that I had violent contradictions. Sometimes the very sound of his footsteps seemed to me tyrannical. The set of his mouth smug and mean, his hard straight body a barrier, interposed quite consciously, even dutifully, and with a nasty pleasure in its masculine authority between me and whatever joy or lightness I could get in life. Then, with not much warning, he became my good friend and most essential companion. I felt the sweetness of his light bones and serious ideas, the vulner vulnerability of his love, which I imagined to be much purer and more straightforward than my own. I would think how humble he was, really, taking on such a ready-made role of husband, father, breadwinner, and how myself, how I myself, in comparison, was really a secret monster of egotism. 
not so secret either, not from him. At the bottom of our fights, we served up what we thought were the ugliest truths. I know there is something basically selfish and basically untrustworthy about you, Andrew once said. I've always known it. I also know that that is why I fell in love with you. Yes, I said, feeling sorrowful but complacent. I know that I'd be better off without you. Yes, you would. You'd be happier without me. Yes. And finally, finally, racked and purged, we clasped hands and laughed, laughed at those two benighted people, ourselves, their grudges, their grievances, their self-justification. We leapfrogged over them. We declared them liars. We would have wine with dinner or decide to give a party. I haven't seen Andrew for years. Don't know if he is still thin, has gone completely gray, insists on lettuce, tells the truth, or is hearty and disappointed. Do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, I love the way she, you know, she's writing about this road trip that she's taking or that she took with her husband and two children. And um, she's, you know, describing that feeling that so many of us have about some things in our lives, whether it's our partners or our jobs or just, you know, parenthood, where you have these violent contradictions. You desperately want something and you desperately need to get away from it. You know, and I write about that in running home about motherhood early on. It's just that you're so torn. Um, And I think that's such a human experience. Um, And she just hits it head on that you can feel both ways at the same time. I love that. And then I love that leap that she makes, you know, just just seamlessly without batting an eye, you know, where she says, I haven't seen Andrew for years. And you as the reader, you know, you're still invested in their marriage. They're on this road trip with their two children in Montana. And then she just kind of slips that in and it, and it's, um, you know, it's such a jolt. Um, and it, it's so masterful about that. Can you share something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I'm going to read something from um, the first chapter of Running Home. Just for context, I'm, I've traveled back to Virginia, and I'm um, shortly after my dad's been diagnosed um, with cancer, and I've brought my newborn baby, Maisie, and I'm going through um, some of my dad's photographs um, because uh, he had been working on archiving them all, and he was really close to finishing, but um, it was getting clear that he was going to run out of time before he finished everything. And so my sister and stepmother and I were sort of tasked with the job of trying to um, make sense of his archives and kind of finish what he would not be able to. And so um, I'm I'm sitting with my dad and he has kind of got, been talking me through some of this material on his hard drive and and then he falls asleep and And so this is a a scene in which I'm kind of being in both places at once, both in the photographs that I'd been finding of my childhood and as a mother with a father who's dying. In her car seat on the floor beside me, Maisie has fallen asleep. She's suckling her pacifier through wobbly lips, in and out, in and out, her plump cheeks expanding and contracting slightly with each breath. Her mouth makes a tiny sound, like a kitten lapping milk with its sandpaper tongue. Dad's still asleep, too, flat in his bed, so still I have to look twice. They make a mournful pair, one just born, 
the other slowly dying. The heaviness in my chest is old and familiar. It's not quite grief, not yet, though I can feel that coming, but a hitch in my heart, a tick of apprehension. Something is missing, but I don't know what. I feel as young as the girl in dad's pictures. I'm homesick, that discomforting in-between feeling, not quite there, not quite here, that I've, that I've felt my whole life with my father. Our relationship has been a constant cycle of coming together and moving apart, hellos and goodbyes. The excitement of arriving and the guilt of going, all twisted up like a tangled skein of wool, happy and sad. Now that we're heading toward our last goodbye, the word has a terrible new meaning, homesick. The first summer we went to Maine, dad made up a game that he called morsel. He would lie on his back on the ground, pretending to be some sort of big monster. Meg and I would run around him, squealing, daring each other to make ever-tightening circles, while he stretched his arms out and tried to grab us with his lurching monster limbs. When he did, he would roar and pull us in, tickling us and holding us tight while we laughed and laughed, pretending to be devoured, little tender morsels of prey. After a while, we would grow tired, all of us, and Meg and I would sag down on either side of him, his arms wrapped around us, giggling and tired, and our stomachs and faces were sore from laughing. We would lie that way for a while until it seemed like maybe dad had fallen asleep and maybe we would too. I felt as though if we lay still, we could stay that way forever. Do you want to say anything else about that? I've kind of wrote this in stages um, because I was trying to get to that feeling of how I felt when I was there with my baby and kind of witnessing my father's rapid decline. Um, and that right there, that's that in-between feeling. I mean, I'm, I'm a new mother and yet I'm a daughter. I'm um, a grown up and yet I'm this girl in this photographs, um, you know, from when my parents had just split up and that sort of, um, that neither here nor there. And I've felt that my whole life. I mean, I really have kind of in, in all phases of my life, not really settling. And I think that's maybe why I love to be in motion outside is, you know, you're away from that feeling of not being at home in either place. And, but that feeling is so deep in me that it's, it, it's hard almost to explain it on paper. It's just part of my subconscious. It's not in my rational mind. And, and so I was working through that, trying to remember that feeling and to put words to it. And I just remembered sort of out of nowhere, that game morsel that my um, dad had played with us. And it seemed to unlock that, the feeling of kind of being neither here nor there. And and it was also that feeling of stillness that I had when I watched my father as, as he um, was dying. And, and, and he had this incredible stillness that was um, both tragic, but also um, sort of profound and, and moving. And so, and th anyway, that just kind of came out in, in stages. The morsel memory um, came to me much later. And I, and I put that in. Where do you write? Um, ostensibly I write in my, um, I have this great little room above our house, a little writing loft where I can see the mountains. I'm sitting here right now. Um, 
and I have a desk up here. Um, but actually, I write everywhere and anywhere. I often write at the kitchen table or now with the weather being so gorgeous, I have a little table outside under the portal. Um, but I also write by hand in my notebooks everywhere. So I'll write on, you know, the side of a river on a river trip or at a mountain hut. Um, I write really well on airplanes because I'm in that sort of in-between liminal state, neither here nor there. So airplanes are really a creative place for me. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really want to get away from writing. I'm just usually trying to find more time for writing. Um, but if I am stuck on something um, or a story or part of the book, um, I will go outside and, you know, in most cases, I'll go for a run and kind of the ideas will jostle around in my head and kind of rearrange in the right way or a sentence will come to me. Um, but it doesn't have to be running. Um, I also love to ride my bike or um, just take the dog for a walk or play with my girls. I find that just being outside in motion is um, kind of the best, the best thing when I need a break from my desk. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't really show it to anyone um, until um, it kind of has this feeling of wholeness, like not being finished by any means, but that it has a shape that feels whole to me. And um, I'll just work on it until I feel that it's kind of a rhythm or um, there's a it, it the, the work will just let me know when I think when it's ready. Um, and then when it is ready, and again, by no means do I think it's um, perfect. I'm not, you know, a perfectionist or striving for that. But um, when I feel that it's ready to show to someone, I'll send it to my agent. Um, or if it's a story for uh, outside or whatever, I'll send it to my editor. But I, I just I keep it kind of going inside of me until it's it's ready to show. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh gosh, poorly. <laughs> like most people I suspect, you know, our egos really want to get involved and I'm learning though a little bit to sort of let go of that and um that's a practice, a pretty deep daily practice. Um uh, one thing I just try to tell myself is that, you know, everything leads me to the next place and, and that includes a rejection. So a no from somewhere might, you know, send me down a different path that leads to a yes. Um, and then also I just try to go where the energy is. I think that's a good um, just lesson in life um, is to go where I'm feeling the energy and where I feel energy. And so oftentimes I'll redirect or it'll just be, um, the rejection will be a wake up call that I was sort of going down the wrong path. Um, but it's, it's, it's a practice for sure every day. And what is your favorite word? Oh my gosh. I have so many favorite words. I have lists of them. Look, I'm just looking at my list. They're a little bit faded from the sun. Um, but they're taped up here above my desk. Um, so I just love the sound of words and kind of the texture of words. Uh, I can't say I have any one favorite. I love words about geology and geography, um, anything about the earth. And I love to use those in my writing. Um, but maybe I would have to say the word that comes to mind right now is rumpled. And I love the word rumpled because I'm looking out at my mountains and they're sort of rumpled. They're not like sharp or pokey. They're just kind of soft and um, like a coat thrown down on the ground. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mitzi. That's great. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Katie Arnold, author of the memoir, Running Home. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.